Welcome back to the Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. If you've been following this season, you know that we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Jay Simons, Atlassian's president for the last 12 years. When he joined Atlassian in 2008, the company was already a product-led success with an estimated $150 million of revenue that year. In 2020, Atlassian's revenue guidance is more than 10x that number at nearly $1.6 billion. Jay has helped build and lead the company's product-led growth efforts to create a truly epic revenue engine. In today's episode, we unpack Atlassian's secret to creating compounding customer value, how Atlassian uses pricing as a competitive advantage, and the role of human champions in a self-serve customer journey. That and more on this episode of The Build Podcast. So let's dive in with Jay Simons. Well, Jay, thanks so much for joining us here on The Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Great to be here. I have found personally some of the material that usually are a little bit more boring for an average company, like an S1 or an investor day to Wall Street analysts. Usually pretty boring, but in your guys' case, extremely valuable. And there's a lot of really great insights in there. And so I was thinking well, you could actually jump into some of those things and some of the models that you've sort of presented in those forums. And one of them maybe is the, the starting point is what you describe as being the math equation behind Atlassian and how Atlassian creates value. So what is that equation? It was the combination of great product and low pricing and automation friction remover, and that equaled high velocity or high volume. And so it was just this idea that we were building this acquisition and growth flywheel. And that flywheel begins with the quality of the product that we build or the quality of the product that anyone builds. And if there's a really large market that we're trying to acquire and grow in over time, we can reach most of that market faster with lower prices. And so price is sort of the first point of friction that you can remove and make it easier for people to consider buying your product because it's more affordable and they feel like they get more value for the exchange of money that they're going to spend to buy the product. So that allows us to sort of pursue that market at volume. If we're going to pursue a market at any volume, we're probably going to transact online and make it easy for our customers to discover us and discover our products and try our products and then buy our products online. If we're going to lubricate that online commerce experience, we want to make it easy to try the product, easy to sign up, easy to get going, easy to understand our pricing model and see what the price of the product is without asking us. And of course, that trial experience needs to also be easy and friction-free. And so that kind of brings you all the way back to the virtuous top of that loop, which is you have to build great products. And I think it's always going to spend. You're going to spend that with better product, higher quality product, removing friction in the consideration phase, removing friction in the purchase and conversion phase. And the more that you're removing that friction, the, you know, the more efficiently that flywheel is going to spin. And unpacking each of those particular pillars, obviously, it sounds pretty straightforward and pretty much a no-brainer in general. The devil is always in the details as to what it means to build great products. So what does this mean specifically for you guys at Atlassian? And how do you embrace this idea of build great products? There's a lot that's packed into great product in quotes there. I mean, I think it naturally begins with building a product that solves a customer pain point or a customer need. And part of what we think about the term great product is it's easy for the customer to map the product that you built to the thing that they're trying to solve for. And you can still have a great product that you might need to explain or you might need to spend a lot more time with, with the customer to help them understand how the market does it because the area is more complex. 
if you really worked on mapping your solution to a customer pain point or problem, and you can build the capability to help the software demonstrate what it can do just in the normal course of how a customer uses it, that's sort of a big friction point that we felt like we could remove. Naturally, in, in our model, we think a lot about word of mouth. And so one of the earliest mantras in the company was we replaced the word great with remarkable. And we wanted to build a remarkable product. And it was a really intentionally chosen word because we felt like if we built a remarkable product, by definition, customers would feel compelled to remark about it. They feel compelled to recommend it or to see its praises or to compliment that or in the age of social media to shout from the rooftops how happy they were that they had the opportunity to use it or perhaps solve some of the problems. And so that remarkability is another form of greatness. And then I think maybe the third attribute is the product and sort of ties to the first one, but you know, we felt like the product is really doing the bulk of the sales job here. And so if we can make it easy for people to discover it, make it easy for people to get into it, then part of its greatness could be in a way that it helps guide people towards the features that may have the highest propensity for conversion or the highest propensity for engagement or the highest propensity for expansion and the virality. We have the benefit of building a team product. And so it has built a network effects where one user can invite another user, one team can invite another team. And that's another part of the product's greatness that we invest a lot in is making it easier for that virality system to do its job. Yeah, I like that change in orientation using the word remarkable it changes who's the judge of whether you have a good product or not. <laughs> because you ask any software company, they're going to say, of course, we have a great product. And of course, it's better than our competitors. And of course, everybody on the planet should want it. But you're not the judge that matters, right? The judge that matters is the person using it. I would say making it remarkable is a really great sort of bar of excellence to aim for. So makes sense to me. One thing you've also highlighted is this concept of that a great product, at least for you guys, should be DIY software. What does that mean? I think DIY yeah, just sort of defined the notion of self-service. That enterprise software for decades was characterized by being cumbersome and difficult to implement. Oftentimes, it was bucketed with some form of professional services or consulting to do the installation, configuration. Business software has come a long way, where today, in 2020, I think the expectation is that you could get started without a lot of hands, but without a lot of explanation and without a lot of assistance and help. And so that was sort of what DIY was trying to connote was if we can make the product easier to use, easier to configure, easier to progressively discover more advanced capability when you're ready for it, then improve the odds of the customer's ability to get started in kind of like in the plant roots with the software in their own without a lot of need for sensor, extra calories on our side. I like that idea that it's not just self-serve, but it's also oriented towards, I can solve problems with this product and I can solve my own problems with this product and I have the autonomy and leeway to do so. I don't need to ask the admin to help me solve problems. I don't need to ask my boss to help me solve problems. Like I can get in and, and immediately get value. And, and that's kind of a killer one-two punch when combined with self-service. So makes sense to me. So if that's the build great product pillar, the next pillar in the equation you mentioned is low pricing. It's interesting. Like that's what you would expect to hear from Walmart or from consumer facing retail companies is low, low prices always. So why do you guys call that out as a software company? And why do you think low prices is so important? 
So it was less about being low and more about just being perceived as incredibly valuable. Early on, we priced intentionally. I think it was relatively affordable compared to what most enterprise software in both categories we competed in, broadly in categories. You know, a lot of B2B software was marked by several hundred thousand dollar ticket items. When we began, we're selling a piece of business software that was a thousand bucks. And, you know, in the very beginning, probably the most that you could spend on a lasting definitely was sub 10K. And part of the design there was we knew that at any time, if you just think about the procurement requisition process in a lot of companies, that over 10K or over 15K, you kind of trigger this formal process for approval. Somebody has to basically say, hey, listen, I actually going to spend 10 or 15 or 20K. I need to set aside budget for that. I need to have that budget approved. I need to go through a procurement requisition process where people are getting involved and I have to explain what I want to do. We intentionally wanted to avoid that. So part of the affordability design was just to remove pricing as a barrier to entry or as a speed bump that customers would have to go over. And what that meant was we could build this acquisition engine, this acquisition flywheel that could attract and convert customers Granted, at relatively small sort of ACV or contract sizes, but we could acquire them in the hundreds to thousands and over the course of a year, the tens of thousands. And that meant that we were more focused on share of market as measured by the total number of customers we acquired versus share of wallet. And that over time, we could capture more share of wallet after we'd already won a customer over the price point and find out different ways to expand them and, and participate in more of the value that we're providing with the products. That was an intentionally designed strategy. If you look back at the time when we started, we were competing. There were a couple of different alternatives that we were replacing. There was the big enterprise segment of the market, you know, IBM and Microsoft and companies like that were competing in at price points that were $1,000 per individual user. So the ACV would be in the hundreds of thousands to millions. And then there was free and open source. We effectively price just above free and open source because that's actually the segment of the market that we're going to go after first. That high volume SMB to mid-market to team entry points at even really big companies. And we removed that, that speed bump of a customer having to say, hey, hang on a minute. Like, why is this tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Or let me go through a process of making sure that I can get approval for that and set that on the side. And that just meant that we built a really efficient foundation for customer acquisition growth. I think one of the descriptive statements that I heard from you uh, about it is that it fits any budget, which I think is a really interesting way to describe it. Exactly as you just highlighted there, a lot of times fitting any budget is oriented towards making it accessible for folks who either have less to spend or might not want to or, or have the ability to take something through procurement and get budget approval and all of that kind of thing. But it also works at the other end of the spectrum, which is if you're getting a ton of value out of this product and you're a really large company and you've adopted and expanded your usage, well, then the price also scales up to fit that budget too, right? Because it's the value that's being delivered. And so that flexibility to serve everyone at all points of the funnel and not just be a small business tool or a big business tool is really, really powerful. That's right. And then the third pillar, if we have good product or great product, and if we have low prices, open prices, great value, the third pillar is automation, which you use to describe your self-service online business model. I guess the first question is, why did Atlassian originally orient this way? 
And then what does that mean today now that you guys have been at it for a couple of decades? I mean, we started in Australia, and so we were going to reach markets beyond Australia's shores. There are a couple of different ways that we could do it. We could hire people and plant them in market, and they could work with customers directly. And certainly at the price point that we picked, that wouldn't, in many cases, make economic sense because we were selling software for less than $1,000 in many cases. And so to hire people and, and basically represent the company and the product through maybe a traditional offline selling motion, this sort of drove the the investment in that online store and e-commerce or BB software, which in 2000, the early 2000s was pretty unusual. It was more common for maybe consumer software and far less common for B2B. And then just this notion of removing friction and automation go hand in hand. And so early on where a customer would ask us a question and say, I can't figure this out or I can't find an answer to this question, we would see that as you think about your acquisition funnel as a product, we would see that not as a feature, but we would see it as a bug. We would see it as something potentially that we could fix that the customer didn't necessarily want to ask for help. And we made it really easy for them to go all the way through. It was no fuss, no fuss. Presumably they're happier with that because they didn't have to raise their hand. They didn't have to ask us a question and wait for an answer. We made it really easy for them to engage if they wanted to and provided a great level of customer service and support pre-sale to them. But the whole goal was, did the customer really want to ask that question or do they want to find an easy answer and then move on? And that was the notion of removing friction and pricing or innovation. If you think about it, pricing is still a really common friction point that in some cases it may make sense to add for the customer, but in many cases it doesn't. If when you go to a pricing page and you see, want to find out how much this costs, click here and ask me. Now there could be a good reason. A lot of sales driven models want to take that opportunity. I mean, that's sort of the feature that you designed at the funnel. I'm creating a reason for customers to have to effectively opt in to engage me. And then I'm going to use that engagement to the best of my ability to grow them and convert them. So that's sort of a logical kind of design choice. In our particular case, at our price points, we thought, well, it makes no sense for somebody to need to ask us how much this costs. And that's that's an unnecessary step that we're asking the customer to make. And so let's automate that out of it. Let's publish all of our pricing. We early on made the decision that we wanted to be pretty democratic with how we treated customers. And so we had a policy of not negotiating terms and conditions. Customers would call us up and ask us, and we would say, no, we don't. We gave them, I think, a very reasonable answer. Like The reason that we don't do that is because we've priced the product so low that we're not hiring a legal team to help negotiate a bunch of contracts on a deal that could be sub-10K. Like it's not economic for us to do that. So the only way it's economic for us to offer you this great software, this really high-value price for you, is to have the contract be non-negotiable. The other reason that we didn't want to negotiate contracts is because one of our values is don't have the customer. And sort of the idea there is we want to be real, fair, and reasonable with every customer. So if we're negotiating one thing with one customer because they asked and not with every other customer because they didn't ask, that felt like it violated our one of our values. And then when you get back to the question you asked, part of removing friction and automation is making that clear to customers what we do and don't do and why or why not. And then they can make a choice. And in some cases, the customer may say, well, if I can't negotiate the contract, I'm actually not going to choose you. And that's okay. Like we're not going to win 100% of every opportunity. But that afforded us, again, the ability to move really quickly just to, to find more of the customers that would opt into that model or that particular approach. 
in most cases, when we needed to explain to a customer why we didn't negotiate terms and conditions, they got the answer. We could say, well, we could we can negotiate a contract, but only if we charge you five or 10 times more than what we're charging you. That's the only way that we can afford to do it. Most times the customer would say, ah, in that case, forget it. <laughs> I'm okay not negotiating with terms and conditions. I understand why you won't. I'll take the lower price. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the lower price. That's what I prefer. And that it was designed for customer choice. It's like, you can choose to do this or not do this. We're just going to be reasonable and explain our reason. And if you don't like it, you can choose not to choose us. And that's okay. And then we're, we're okay with that. I hadn't thought about it that way before, which I think about removing friction, which is like unnecessary steps in a self-serve funnel, which is what everyone's sort of striving for today. But this idea of transparency, the more transparent you are, the more friction you remove because the fear of questions people have. And you see this a lot in enterprise, large enterprise-oriented software businesses. If every question is, well, it depends, we handle that on a case-by-case -case basis. And it requires a 30-minute conversation to answer any question because it's so tailored and so sort of bespoke to that customer's situation. You can squeeze a little bit of extra juice out of the lemon, so to speak, in some situations. But in the grand scheme of things, it might actually just introduce way more friction, slow down your process, and actually sub-optimize in the grand scheme of things versus just having a straightforward, transparent approach from the get-go. You also mentioned that Atlassian oriented this way from the beginning out of necessity, obviously being based in Australia and then also having a low starting price point. But if you were advising an entrepreneur today in 2020 as to how to set up their business, why is this online business model versus an offline business model of SaaS? Why is that the better way to do it today? I think it really depends on the market that you're in the competitive landscape in that market, like how you're gonna differentiate, what customers you're trying to acquire, certainly price. I mean, there's so many factors that go into choosing your acquisition conversion strategy. And by the way, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, today, I mean, we have a direct sales organization. We have an indirect channel selling organization. Part of what really was virtuous, I think, about Lassie's business model today is that we've worked really hard to combine this high-velocity self-service acquisition flywheel with, I think, really smart and thoughtful direct selling motions for higher-value customers and higher-value selling opportunities with an indirect reseller and solutions channel that can represent us in markets and remove other points of friction for the customer that we don't like. An example of that might be selling in local currency or being invoiced or billed locally. For tax purposes, those are things that we don't do. So if you actually want an invoice that represents our products in euros, you would buy that through a reseller in that particular market. And so I, I think that's the answer to your question is it really depends. It depends on so many factors of what a business looks like and what they're trying to go after and how they want to go after it and potentially how they want to differentiate their growth market approach either their customer acquisition strategy from a competitor. I do think if your market's really big, and I think there are lots of examples of this, but if you have the ability to reach tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of customers, then you're addressing multiple market segments, uh, all the way potentially from small businesses all the way up to really big enterprise. And you might want to think what is the best, most efficient, most effective approach to acquire and grow customers in those segments. And it may not be one size fits all. You may figure out kind of different approaches for different customer segments and categories and different price points. And certainly that's what we did over time. I mean, I think if you look at where we began, 
we began in, a, in an unconventional way with a single flat price. And so it didn't really matter how big you were, you spent the same amount of money. It wasn't until later in our journey, in our evolution, that we began to charge more for customers that used more of the software. And the thing that we metered on was usage or usage or users. And so the more users you had at the last scene, the more that you would pay over time. And if you look back in 2003, the most you could spend on Jira was, I think, like $800. You fast forward to 2020, there's a version of Jira, one of our products that is $500,000 a year. And so that's a, that's a pretty big evolution over the span of, of 17 years, 18 years. But I think it was really intentional and thoughtful, and it allowed us to build this foundation of learning how to acquire customers with very light touch, and then adding features effectively onto our sales and marketing model as the needs evolved and as different segments of the market opened to different ways and we wanted to service them. So that'd be a long-winded answer. I would do something to ask that question. <laughs> Short answers, it depends. And as we're starting to unpack some of these specific go-to-market tactics and approaches for different segments and, and different products, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to shift gears and talk about the new customer journey. That's what we're we're looking to unpack in this this overall sort of season of the podcast. So if I think about a, a standard set of motions in a customer journey, it's attract, convert, and expand. And so if we unpack those for Atlassian, how do you guys attract and build top of funnel? I mean, the biggest driver of attraction for us is the one that I mentioned earlier, which is word of mouth. And it is the most valuable one because it's in many ways the most dynamic. If you build kind of a repeatable process where once you earn a customer, they become fanatical about you. If you have the opportunity to convert a customer into a fanatic, that fanatic is going to help spread the word. And that fanatic, if they leave their company and go to a new one, is going to be an activator for the opportunity that they have in that new company. So that's still... I think the largest channel of a new customer acquisition for us is somebody hears about us from a colleague, from a friend, from an industry group, from a bunch of different channels. And we also have a reasonably strong brand now of 18 years after founding. And so I, I think the products and the categories that they compete with have really strong reputations. And oftentimes you probably will have heard of Jira or of Confluence or Bitbucket or Trello and you seek it out because you've heard enough about it and you want to understand what it does. You know, naturally we focus a lot of energy on most of the common awareness channels, the SEO and SEM advertising. We do a fair amount of both digital online and offline events and most of the offline events are with our indirect channel. And so we work hand in hand with them in the market to gather customers in, in region and in the place they're in and support what they're trying to do from a demand generation perspective. And we also have our own demand generation efforts that should create a bunch of downstream opportunity for them. We do a lot of marketing into our install base. And part of that is to, to help activate that word of mouth that I mentioned earlier. And so we've got a Stable base on over 150,000 customers, and there's lots and lots and lots of users. And if we can get them talking about something that we're excited about, or we think they should be excited about, that has a, a reverberation or echo effect potentially with people that don't know about us yet. So I would say that we do all of the things in marketing to generate awareness and demand and get more people to to come to our front door and try to understand how we can help them. We do them all, I would say. There's sort of nothing that we ignore. But word of mouth tends to be a really important one continuing for us. 
Now, I've heard you describe Atlassian's top of funnel as being probably more similar to a consumer top of funnel and a consumer growth model just because it is high volume and because it is self-serve and, and focused on automation. And that is obviously a lot different than your traditional B2B considered purchase funnel. So how does that influence the way that you run marketing and run sort of top of funnel operations versus a traditional B2B software company? I mean, I think there's still similarity, right? The notion is we're trying to convince more and more people to discover us, come learn about what we do, and then effectively to convert them into interests or into evaluators or people that are going to try the product to see if it maps to what they need and then buy it. Maybe one of the biggest differences would be we go through our funnel, back to the notion of friction. I think in a traditional B2B company with a selling motion, there's a reason that you're inserting more points of friction. In many cases for B2B, it might not be possible for you to track a product without interfacing with sales or without interfacing with the company. You need to request the ability to try the product. That's still, I think, less and less common, but still increasingly common. And in the, the sort of consideration phase, there might be lots of opportunities for the marketing team who's looking to harvest an email and so they can build maybe more nurtured or personalized content kind of in the consideration phase. If you look at our funnel, we really only have one call to action. And that call to action is get into the product. We don't want to send you a bunch of white papers or send you down a bunch of content rabbit holes. That stuff is there for you to discover if you want. You're going to have to reg for it. What we really want you to do, and we'll ask you to reg, naturally, because we need an email address for you, is we want to get you in the product. And once you're in the product, I think there's a lot more investment on our side than maybe a traditional B2B company in what the products can do to onboard you, the things I mentioned earlier to increase the likelihood that you'll activate, that you'll continue post-trial, that you'll become an active user, and that you'll begin to do the things that we know increase the likelihood of engagement and team expansion, conversion, become a paid user, paid customer, all those things. And so I think there's probably a higher degree of in-product growth and experimentation and analytics and those things that you still find in, I think, in any B2B company, but maybe I think the rule is more advanced. And we're starting to touch on it here with this discussion uh, or this portion of the discussion. But if we've talked about attracting customers and if we've talked about top of funnel and if the next phase is converting them, how do you guys approach conversion in the customer journey? And, and maybe as a specific starting point, what's the role of product and automation and self-serve versus humans? And I know you guys call folks advocates who provide assistance. Walk us through that. For the bulk of customer acquisition, I think marketing and products are driving a bunch of people in the consideration and evaluation phase. And then products, both kind of core product and then people in growth that might be experimenting with what the onboarding can do or what certain features can do that improve the propensity for converting. Those teams, I think, carry the bulk of acquisition and conversion. And the metric for us in the cloud is activity. Post-trial, the trial may be, we have a free version of the product now, so you can use the products in perpetuity and free, and there's some percentage of those customers that are effectively evaluating free as a, a user. And so they're evaluating, using free, kind of evaluate for a standard kind of paid version. Prior to free, we had a time limit of trial. 
And so you have a 78-day or 14-day trial depending on the product. And then the measure that we were looking post that was just active usage. And you were converting into an active user where you have credit card refund, pay for the product, and it becomes effectively a converted customer. As you mentioned, we have a group of people that I like to think of as additional friction removers. We say any customer that is trying one of our products, get us, say, listen, we are... We'll bend over backwards to help you. We'll answer any question that you have. It's really easy for you to engage with us. If you don't want to engage with us, we'll leave you alone. If you do need help and assistance in understanding what we do and what the product can or can't do, we're at the other end of an email or a chat or a phone provide great service. And that team, that team is measured on CSAT. And so post an engagement with an evaluator will basically ask them, hey, how's the how are the answers to the questions that you asked us? Were they good? Did you feel like you got a great level of service? It's that sort of one measure. And then the other measure is volume. And so that group again is focused on helping as many customers as quickly as possible and then moving on to new ones that may need help. And so that's sort of like how that acquisition engine works. And then sales for us typically gets engaged with existing customers that have higher value expansion opportunities or upgrade opportunities. And so they've been an existing customer for a while and there may be a premium or an enterprise version of the product that they're not using. Then we want to spend a little bit more time helping them understand why we believe they should be using it. Sort of like high-level summary of, of how that piece of the funnel works. It's interesting because I will often personally point to the idea that in a self-serve B2B funnel, friction comes from humans in the funnel. And I think that that's true, but what you just helped me appreciate from a nuanced perspective is that it's more like mandatory humans in the funnel equals friction. If I have no option but to see the product through talking to a salesperson and to hear about the price through talking to a salesperson, then that's annoying, right? And that's friction. If, however, at the other end of the spectrum, the way that Atlassian does it, it's a completely self-serve funnel, it's completely automated, friction is removed, but if I have questions, I have the option to get help from a human, but it's not required. And that actually is another way to remove friction by having those optional folks there who can assist and walk you through the journey. Yeah, that's right. And then those folks, you know, another core part of their job is to help us understand, hey, the interactions that customers are opting in for, are those interactions that we can fix? Like, are those things that we should fix? And so downstream, the next set of customers don't need to ask those questions. It's super easy for them to either find the answer on their own or we just make it more obvious than it currently is. It should be more obvious for the customer. That's sort of part of their job is to also help make the funnel more efficient. One of the questions that I get a lot and we're trying to answer through this season of the podcast is, well, when and how do I layer in human effort, whether it's from a sales team or a success team or whatever it may be, into a self-service funnel? And something you've said is that touch needs to be smart, that human touch needs to be smart. And so how do you guys think about that? If you have your advocate teams and you have this largely 90% plus self-service funnel, how do they know who to reach out to, who to offer help to, who to leave on a self-service path and journey? How does that overall just decision-making process of who gets human help and who doesn't, how does that get handled for you guys? Partially, it's about defining kind of clear segments of your customers. And maybe you draw a line around customers with a certain spend threshold or a certain size or products that have a certain price point or a certain opportunity for you where it makes sense for you to invest more time in helping the customer and guiding the customer and selling proactively. Part of being smart, I think, involves 
providing both people teams or kind of the automated teams at high velocity, just the data to help understand where you are intercepting the customer or inserting some point of interaction or some touch point. It's a fulsome touch where you understand as best that you can who that customer is, what data you have about them, if they've been in the product, what parts of the product have they used, where have they gotten stuck. You want to imbue kind of the interactions that you do have with as much data and sort of knowledge that you can actually give that interaction just to help it be a smarter one for the customer. And again, I think the customers are going to appreciate that. And actually, I think that, that goes into just even simple things like onboarding emails that come out of our products, right? Like if your onboarding email sequence says, hey, Blake, did you know that part of the product that we're super excited for you to discover is the widget section? And you've been using the widget section for three days already. That's a useless email. As an evaluator, it potentially degrades your evaluation experience because you're like, well, they've just sent me something that I didn't use. And so I think part of that smart touch is whether it's kind of an automated drip email or it's a salesperson that has a sales script or it's marketing campaign into your existing customer base about kind of a new thing that you want to cross-sell them to. Forget the gun metaphor, but you shouldn't waste any bullets. Like this should all be super, super smart and targeted and benefit the customer with the thing that you know about them. I like that, is that the smart touch is a data-driven touch. I'm targeted in who I'm reaching out to. I'm using all of the product data and firmographics and user information to figure out that I'm reaching out to the right people. And, and that's part of it. You don't want to have sort of a shotgun approach to every single user, especially not in a high-volume funnel like you guys. It just doesn't scale. But targeted is not the extent of smart. What you were just highlighting there is that it also needs to be informed with appropriate context so that when you have that targeted outreach, you're saying the right things, you're context aware of where they are in their journey and who they are as an organization. And it really does feel like it's kind of carrying the baton forward versus taking multiple steps back and restarting, which we've all had in customer interactions. And let's bring it home with the final leg of the customer journey here, which is expanding. And we've talked a bit about it here, but I know something that's really well built out for you at Atlassian is this idea of in-product cross flows. So what's that and how does that work for driving expansion and further adoption? It's just this idea that uh, customers are already using product A and product B has, has some integration or intersection points to it. And that's, that's naturally a prerequisite. And that you could more easily, in many cases, cross-flow users from product A into product B than you could cross-sell. Like cross-sell means, you know, I kind of need to deal with a person that maybe bought product A and I need to convince them that they should evaluate or look at product B. And then they need to buy product B. A simple example that we would use here is a collaborative project management system. And Confluence is a collaborative content system. Oftentimes, you're going to want to link a document from Confluence inside of Jira. And so that's a value proposition that I could pitch to the admin of Jira to brought Jira into a company. But potentially, when I see a user inside of Jira copy and paste Google Docs link or attach an office document to a Jira ticket, that's an opportunity to say to that user, hey, did you know that there's a way to create documents that feel like they're natively inside of Jira and it's super easy and I think you'll really like it and we'll give you a bunch of other things you can do with a document you want to give that a try. That individual user can be any one of 10, 100, 1,000 users on that, that Jira instance. And so I've got multiple bites of the apple. I've got lots of different people that I could take on that little journey and then they become activated around what that second component could do. 
that's sort of the notion. There's a lot of things that you need to do differently in that particular approach than you would with just a selling team trying to go into the account and sell the second product. And you can certainly do, again, those aren't exclusive. You can do both of them at the same time. You could have a really targeted account strategy that helps understand who the influencers are in your account, sets up downloads and sets up instances at the same time that that product you've engineered little triggers that look for opportunities to highlight a path that might be super valuable for your individual I love that that takes the idea of a smart touch and extends it to this idea of uh, in-product cross-flows. I'd say the the really basic version, and, and it certainly is popular today and it's better than nothing, is a more generic blast in-product message, which would be, hey, did you know all users of Jira that we also have this other product called Confluence? Click here to learn more. That's not smart. Again, better than nothing, but not smart. And this idea of recognizing and acknowledging what somebody's doing in the product and how that could be better in an intelligent way and saying, hey, that thing you just did could be so much better through our other product, click here to use it. And the fact that that doesn't get single threaded through just the admin of the account or just the sort of owner of the solution from a budget standpoint, but that that is surfaced up to every user of the product, it really democratizes that expansion opportunity and that cross-sell opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So I guess as a final question, just curious to get your take if we look forward into the future of software. This Atlassian way of doing software was certainly very unique and you guys pioneered it in many ways for the last couple of decades. But looking forward, does the old model continue to work or does the Atlassian model become the new norm? What do you think? I mean, if you look at Atlassian, Atlassian's model has evolved every year that I've been here. And I think it will continue to evolve. It will continue to evolve as you have different products, as you serve different customers and you figure out different ways to serve your existing customers, different things to offer those customers. I think what's a testament to our model is that evolution that we've added capability and features to it over time. Even where we added direct selling organization, we're still focused on kind of reinforcing the high velocity, low friction part of how the model acquires customers at scale. I mean, certainly there are more and more examples of companies that operate in big markets, big markets where, where there's lots of customers that they can acquire, and they figured out ways from Zapier to Spensify to Boom. They figured out how to remove a bunch of friction from the consideration phase of the customer and earn that customer or win that customer pretty efficiently. Again, that affords them that affords them a future opportunity to figure out how to expand them. And you can either expand them through all the smart touch ways that we mentioned, if you've got products that are super high value and you know, this is a customer that has the that presents an opportunity to spend lots of money in exchange for all the, the many things that you would do and you want to invest more proactively in, in some notion to help take that customer through that path, that's another option. And you might have an indirect channel that can help serve your customers in different ways that you can, both through local language or local geography or professional services. And so that's a future expansion opportunity once you land them. I think that's sort of the really interesting thing about studying these business models is different ways in which the jigsaw pieces can kind of come together. Yeah, I think that's a really great parting message here as we wrap up the episode, especially in the world of product-led growth. I know that it certainly is an area where many founders in the early days of product-led growth can have a little bit more of a dogmatic view, which is I built a self-service product. I don't like salespeople myself. And so therefore I'm always going to have this approach to expand from that and to have a bit more of an open mind. It's fine to sort of have that really specific, really sort of opinionated approach to start with. 
but then recognizing that as your company grows, as your customer base grows, as your product offering grows, the needs of folks will also evolve with it. And you should have an open mind to bring in elements of a more traditional customer journey and a more traditional go-to-market approach, but tailor them exactly as we we're talking about with the smart touch idea, tailor them to your self-service model and to your specific context. So it's not mutually exclusive and there is still a lot that we can learn from the wisdom of the past. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Jay, this has been an awesome conversation, super helpful for us to figure out this new customer journey. And thanks for joining us on the Build Podcast. Thanks, Blake. Be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content, and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together.